Are you afraid of dying? That's the question that convicted me because every night Patty and I pray for our protection. And we pray especially for the protection of our children and especially the protection of our grandchildren who are very dear to us. And so I was convicted as I read through this scripture. Just what do I want to be protected from? What am I expecting God to do for me when I pray these prayers of protection? Jesus prays for our protection in this prayer, but we don't really ever look at what specifically he was praying about for us. Are you worried about your life? Are you anxious about dying? Do you try to avoid thoughts about death? You see, Jesus prayed for many, many things in this prayer. I mean, he went on and on in this prayer, and he prayed for many things. But one thing in particular that captured my attention is that he prayed for our protection. So if you will allow me, let's dig into this piece of scripture here a bit about what Jesus was preparing uh, was praying for. This prayer is referred to as the high priestly prayer, or also it is known as Jesus's farewell prayer. And in John 17, you get the whole prayer. We're looking at uh, the middle section of it, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself as he prepares to go to the cross, as he prepares to offer his life. And so the first portion of the prayer, he's praying to God in the context of his upcoming sacrifice. Then verses 6 through 19, the part that we have for today, he is praying for the disciples and for all of his followers, all of those people that he lived amongst, that he ministered with and to, and he is, he is praying for all of them. And in the very last portion, verses 20 through 26, Jesus is praying for all future followers. So those of us who call ourselves Christians, Jesus prays for us in this last section of the prayer. But we don't have the first or the last part designated for this scripture today. We've got the middle part, the part for the disciples and the followers. We also believe that Jesus prayed this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was uh, the night that he was betrayed and arrested. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. And this piece of land is just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, it is still there today. They have a beautiful church that is built on the grounds. And there are actually a couple of olive trees that date back 2,000 years. So they think that these olive trees, some of them went back to the time of Jesus, which is really quite spectacular when you think about it. And this is the place where Jesus used to take his disciples to pray. And so the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Gethsemane is a Greek word that's translated from an Aramaic word, which means olive press, because they would have had an olive press on the Mount of Olives because it was harvested, the olives were harvested there and pressed into olive oil. So Jesus is praying this prayer on behalf of himself, his disciples, and us. And he's praying this prayer because he knows something that we don't know. Jesus knows something that you and I do not know yet. Jesus knows it, and his Father knows it. But at this point, we don't know it. Do you want me to tell you what it is? All right, this is it. Jesus is on death row. Jesus is on death row. He is just hours, maybe minutes, away from being arrested in this garden where he will be taken, where he will be tried, first by the Sanhedrin and then by the Romans. And then ultimately he will be condemned to death and he'll be crucified on the cross. You see, God had sent him into this world to suffer and to die on our behalf. You know, Jesus knew his whole life that he was on death row because that was the purpose for him coming to this earth. He came to take away our sins and to give us and all of creation new life. You see, that was a part of the expectation of the Messiah. Not that just we would be raised from the dead, but that God's whole creation would begin to be restored. If one is on death row, you probably have heard this before, but you usually receive a last meal of your favorite foods. What foods would you choose if you were on death row? What are your favorite things to eat? Well, Jesus would have had his last meal, his last supper with his disciples. He celebrated that night before with the disciples and some of the followers the Passover, the Passover meal. And then after the Passover, he instituted the Last Supper. Remember the words of institution that we use? That word from Scripture that that tells us the purpose of this meal? That it is Jesus' body and blood that he has given so that we might have life. Not only are you offered a last meal, but this prayer for his disciples is also in preparation for his upcoming death. It's a prayer, in a sense, a message for his loved ones. And his loved ones here are really the disciples and those followers that had been with him and maybe a couple of family members, but at this point not all of the family. And so the prayer, the message that he is leaving is really for his spiritual family. It's for those 
whom he know will carry on the work that he has begun. And so he prays for them, these words of love. And these words of challenge and these words of hope. One of the things that I um, recently heard was a military commander from the U.S. military. We're coming up to Memorial Day, so people are kind of preparing for those celebrations. But this military commander shared all of the messages that he had received from the soldiers that had served under him as he sent them out into battle. And, and you could tell that it weighed heavy on his heart, all the soldiers that he had sent into battle. He said, I can't tell you how many of them gave me little pieces of paper or note cards. And he said, if I don't make it out of this battle, please make sure my mother gets this or my wife gets this or my children get this. He said every one of those messages revolved around the theme of their love for that person. Dear Mom, I, I loved you. You meant the world to me. Don't worry about me. And so these messages of love are important for those of us who are survivors. And this prayer is important for the disciples and the followers of Jesus who will survive him. Jesus has taken his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray on this last night. And at their invitation, he, at his invitation, they begin to pray with him. For a little while, but it was a big Passover lamb shank, and they keep falling asleep. They, they fell asleep, and Jesus had to come and awaken them, ask them, aren't you going to be able to pray with me even one hour? And so they prayed some more, and then they fell asleep again. Jesus prayed for his disciples, even as they slept. And he prays for you, and he prays for me, even when we fail him. In verse 20, this is the transition from prayer, the prayer for the disciples and the followers of that time to prayer for the disciples and followers of all times. Verse 20 says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message, through the message of the disciples, that apostolic message, the the word of God that we have in Scripture. You see, Jesus isn't just praying for his disciples. He's praying for us, too. And late into the night, Jesus' prayer and his disciples sleeping are interrupted. They're interrupted by the temple police who come to arrest him. This is the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Jesus prayed that his followers would be protected. Remember that prayer of protection that I said we pray every night? Jesus prayed for his followers that they would be protected. 
However, this is not what he prayed for. He didn't pray for us to be removed from every harm, every danger. As a matter of fact, this is what he prayed. Jesus said, I am not asking you to take them out of this world. You see, if, if Jesus really wanted to protect you and to keep you safe from any harm, any danger, he would have said, okay, Father, let's take them out of the world. But the world is not resolved yet. Because of the fall, the world is still broken. There is still sin. And so there is still harm, and there is still tragedy, and there is still danger. Jesus is not removing us from those things. He is leaving us in the world to experience those things. And if we are afraid of dying, we may not like these words from Jesus. And you may not like the words from me bringing it up. But Jesus didn't give Christians a special status so that we would never have to suffer. We're not given extra dispensations. We're not given extra privileges. That's not how God works. I've often heard from people that tell me they don't believe in God because God has allowed these acts of suffering to happen in the world and they can't reconcile a loving God with acts of suffering. It's hard to have a conversation with people that have a mindset like this because what it avoids is our responsibility, our actions or inactions, which have also caused harm and danger to the world. So Jesus doesn't give us special treatment. And therefore, we will experience suffering. And I can tell you, I, I, I can't tell you why bad things happen. I can't tell you why tragedies happen. I mean, I wish they didn't happen. But I'm not that great of a theologian to tell you, explain to you why they don't, why they happen or why you have to suffer. But this is what I can tell you. It's that bad things do happen to good people. And as a matter of fact, bad things happen to Christians. And blaming God and rejecting Jesus is not a Christian response. As a matter of fact, um, Mark Batterson, a pastor in the D.C. area, and an author, he's written multiple books, is uh, asked this question, proposes this question in his book called Not Safe. This is what he writes. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? That, I think, demands a rereading. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. Jesus died to make us dangerous. 
And one of the ways that we do dangerous things for God is when we come together as the body of Christ, unified. That is dangerous. When the church actually is the church and it is identified as God's church because it is comprised of the children of God who have been given authority by God, who have been the conduit of God's power into this world, that is when amazing things happen. That is when you see Christians changing the world. For instance, China outlawed any kind of religious expression, including Christianity. Up until the 1950s, we would send missionaries into China. Matter of fact, there's a history of, of Lutheran missionaries into China. So the Chinese government wanted to stop this movement of Christianity. So they kicked out all the Christian missionaries and they threatened any Chinese with death that would proclaim Christ. The fastest growing church today is in China. And so we are called not to do easy things. We are called to do dangerous things. However, it seems like sometimes, maybe especially in the States here, that we as Christians can become kind of petty and divisive. Well, I would come to church, but I don't like that you don't sing all hymns, Pastor, so I'm going to go to another church that does sing hymns. I've heard that one multiple times. I've heard this one. Well, if you're not going to do all contemporary music, then I'm not coming. I'll just worship God from my bed and home. Or we divide over politics. Or over, you know, can, can, can Republicans be Christians? Can Democrats be Christians? Or we, we divide over economic policy. Well, I think it's good that we're helping the poor, but how much should we be helping the poor? You know, not only that, we divide over class. Are you middle class, upper class, lower class? Have no class? We divide by race. I'm a BLM, BLM person. I, I hate BLM. You know, we divide by gender. Well, can women really do that? We even divide by digital work, you know? Um, I watch Facebook. Oh, I never get on. I'm, only, I'm an Instagram guy. I never get on to Facebook. We even let mass divide us. And that's just us as Christians. Now, <laughs> you let the rest of the world in, and it's going to get even crazier. So, is Jesus really proud of us? I mean, as American Christians, comfortable, easy things. Is that what Jesus wants from us? 
Maybe our sin is that we let so many things get in the way of worshiping God, of praising God, that we allow our divisions to define us rather than Jesus. On December 30th in 2002, 19 years ago now, there's a Christian missionary, medical missionary, a doctor, a woman who had been trained here in the States, grew up in the Christian church, went to Samford University, went on to get her medical license, her medical degree and license, and always they said they knew, all of her classmates knew from the time she was a young girl that she was going to be a medical missionary. While she worked for the American Baptist Mission Society, and she, along with others from the United States, were stationed at a Christian hospital in the, nation, the small nation of Yemen. And she had made headway at this hospital. Hundreds and hundreds of, of young pregnant women, she was an OBGYN, came to see her. And they were able to have safe, healthy births because of her care for them. She made such an impact in the community. And this was a Muslim community. It's a Muslim nation. And they loved her. Except for one radical Islamic militant who walked into the hospital on that December 30th and shot it up. He shot and killed three of the missionaries and a fourth one was critically injured. This physician was one of the three that died. The report says that she died instantly from a shot to the head. Later, when apprehended by authorities, this man was questioned about why he had done this. And he told them, I did it so that I could be closer to Allah, closer to God. You see, he thought that division and hatred and murder and death, he thought these things would bring him closer to God. What do we think? You see, his hatred of Christianity was his identity, not God. When we allow division to control us, it can do really destructive things. We may not have automatic machine guns, although some of you might. We may not have those, but we certainly have mouths. And we have minds that can think. And we can make statements that can harm people. We can say and do things that create emotional damage, spiritual damage to people. When we allow division to control us, our church is no longer the body of Christ. It has become a hateful institution. That is why Jesus prayed for us to be protected. He said to protect us from division, 
from the evil one so that we might be one. Protecting us from the evil one because that is where suffering and evil and tragedy come from. As Christians, we receive no special protection. Jesus is praying that we would not be tempted by the devil. He is praying that we would not allow our hatred, our division, our prejudice to become our identity. As a matter of fact, Jesus is telling us that God has a new identity for us. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God, that is our identity. And the amazing thing is not only did God give us an identity, but he gave us an inheritance. He also gave us his authority to speak and to act in his name. Now, when we speak and act in our name with the vision in mind, that's exactly what we're doing is speaking and acting in our name. But because you are a child of God, you've also been given the authority of God to speak and act in his name. And not only the authority, but the power. You see, the power, if it's our power, it's our striving, it's not power. But true power comes from God that enables you to do things that you would never have done on your own. That enables you to love and care for people that you thought you could never love and care for. God is able to use us, the church, the body of Christ, to do amazing things. If we continue to identify, not with division, but with unity. Not with Satan, but with God. There's a story, this Mark Batterson, this author, writes about it. He makes a passing reference to it. and So I actually looked it up and read more about this group. But two centuries ago, uh, 200 years ago, there was this movement in, uh, uh, in the United States to send missionaries into the world. In particular, a lot of these missionaries went to the Southwest Pacific. And they would go to places where predecessors had gone as missionaries and had been killed upon their arrival. And so this group of missionaries had a name for themselves, and I would like to entertain the idea that maybe we consider adopting it. <laughs> you, know, you know what their name was? One-Way Missionaries. <laughs> One-Way Missionaries. I, I kind of like that idea because it keeps us focused on our purpose, right? Is our purpose to build up our wealth so we can retire and enjoy life? And I, I mean, you may be doing that, but is that our purpose? Our purpose is to serve Christ in this world. So these missionaries, these one-way missionaries, as they prepared to depart on their missionary journey, this is what they would do. Is they would take the things that they would need and they would take them and they would pack their coffins. <laughs> yeah, they were given a coffin. They weren't, you heard me right, there was no suitcases. 
there was no travel bag. You got, a, you got issued a coffin, and that's what you packed your things in. One-way missionaries, right? This would be a one-way trip to praise God, to give glory to God. Well, one of the things that we are learning is today is that, um, is that we did such an effective job of, of missionizing the world that there are now, um, you want to know where the biggest need for missionaries is today? Here, United States. I remember my advisor and one of my history professors at seminary told me that, and he, he, he told us, he said, in your lifetime, said to people like me 35 years ago, in your lifetime, there will be a change, a transition. Instead of sending missionaries out, we will be receiving more missionaries in than we are sending out here in the United States. He's been speaking this word for 40, 50 years, and today it is true. We receive more missionaries today than we send. And friends, that's a good thing. I'm grateful. I am so thankful that there are one-way missionaries coming here too. So perhaps we don't need to be sent around the world Maybe our mission field is right here in our neighborhood or in our community or in our state. Maybe we should be listening to God to see where God is calling us to serve. And the next, maybe the next time that we're asked to help a neighbor, to help give money to fund a project, to tutor a child on Wednesday afternoons. Maybe the next time we're asked those things, we should remember this story about the one-way missionaries. So are you still afraid of dying? If not, then please join me. When you go home today, let's start packing our coffins. Amen? Amen.